It's April 2015, Episode 5, Contributing to Free Software Without Writing Code. Welcome to Hacking Culture, featuring in-depth interviews with free software advocates. Hacking Culture is brought to you by Lullabot, and I'm your host, Matthew Tift. To say that Ruth Seeley is involved in open source and free software would be an understatement. Ruth works at Red Hat, where she was the marketing team leader for the Fedora project, and she is co-author of the book Raspberry Pi Hacks. She is a senior editor at Geek Mom and has been a moderator at opensource.com. She has a wide range of interests that include sewing, art criticism, maker spaces, open education, and of course, open source and free software. Part of the reason I knew I had to get Ruth on the show was that when I was doing some preliminary research, listening to one of Ruth's past talks, my wife overheard it and said, she sounds cool. <laughs> Thank you so much for coming on the show, Ruth. How are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. I'm excited to hear that at least somebody thinks I'm cool. Could she go back to my high school and let somebody else know? Yes, definitely. She's good at making people feel cool. <laughs> That's awesome. <laughs> and going back in time. Really? I'd, I'd love to borrow her TARDIS sometime. Now, I have heard that you like to make costumes. Have you ever attempted to make a TARDIS? Uh, I don't have a TARDIS costume. I, I painted a door in my house to look like the TARDIS. Does that count? Yes, that counts. I could peek out from behind it. <laughs> I don't think I actually have any Doctor Who costumes. Like, flipping through the costume Rolodex in my head, I thought about doing the Doctor's Wife from the episode, uh, from the episode The Doctor's Wife, where the soul of the TARDIS goes into the woman. Uh, but I haven't done that yet. Uh-huh. Well, I'm going to nod and smile because I'm not sure I've seen that episode. Good job with the nodding and smiling. You totally look like you know what's going on. Yeah, everybody hears that well on the podcast. <laughs> so today we're here to talk about your involvement in open source and free software. And the first thing I thought we could talk about was Red Hat, because Red Hat is very well known in the open source world. Founded in 1993, it became the first billion dollar Linux company a few years ago. What's it like working at Red Hat? It is a fantastic place to work. I've been there almost eight years now, I think. I started on the brand team. I was originally hired to work on Red Hat Magazine, for those who remember that publication. And we did a lot with that, spawned a couple of other blogs off of it that were called Truth Happens and DevFu, and did a lot with that until it turned into opensource.com. Not in a, a direct transformational sort of way, but more like Red Hat Magazine stopped publishing and opensource.com started about a year later, I think. So I was there at the beginning of opensource.com and worked on that for a while until I moved to the team I'm on now, which is open source and standards, which is a really great team that's only about three years old now that we created at Red Hat to work with all of our upstream communities and ensure their success, because, of course, their success is so important to Red Hat's success. So it's important for us to, to be committed to them and involved there. What are some of those upstream communities Fedora, of course, which is where I started when I came into OSAS. The CentOS team is uh, in a part of open source and standards, or OSAS as we call it. RDO, which uh, relates to OpenStack, Overt, Atomic, the upstreams that all lead into Red Hat's products and needs. But we have this subset, a number of which I just mentioned, that are the ones that we focus on the most and have people dedicated to. And just for folks that aren't familiar with the lingo. What do you mean by upstream? Oh, okay. <laughs> I like to say so even my mom could understand. Sure. Well, and, and I have two small children, so I have a lot of experience in attempting to explain to small children uh, what it is that I do. <laughs> and so I generally use Fedora as the example because even people who are only vaguely familiar with open source have heard of Linux. And so, you know, do you know what Linux is? You know what Linux is. Okay, well, let's talk about how Linux is developed differently from say, your Windows operating system or a lot of the other software that you use. You probably use Firefox or other open source software. It's great that it's becoming increasingly common that people use open source software, whether or not they realize it. And I can point at this thing and say, you are taking advantage of this community work. And so in the case of Fedora and Red Hat Enterprise Linux, the, the upstream is that original development area, creating the source code, working on everything. And so Fedora, in Fedora's case, we have a new release every six months. That's a 
really fast, uh, fast pace of pushing out a new version. That doesn't work for an enterprise customer, someone who needs to use Linux to, say, keep a stock exchange running or, you know, to do, to do serious work like that. And so about every three years, Red Hat takes a snapshot of where Fedora is and uses that to create the Red Hat Enterprise Linux that is supported and that we have services for. You are good at explaining that stuff. I have well when I explained it to the kids I I I used the the much smaller examples there was actually a, if if I can take a complete tangent there was a great thread on Reddit this week about how a 9-year-old explained net neutrality there should be an entire website of how well actually there is the subreddit explain it like I'm 5 so there kind of is uh, but there should be a whole place where you can explain all of these things to a small kid so the way that this 9-year-old explained net neutrality was to say Pretend your favorite ice cream store gives away free milkshakes all the time. All you have to do is buy the straw to drink them. And and that's cool because you get free milkshakes. You just have to buy a straw, right? Like, this sounds like an awesome deal. And it's kind of like the Internet we have now. You just have to get your straw and then you get all the milkshakes you want. Except that one day you're working on your milkshake and then you look down and the guy who works in the ice cream shop is holding your straw shut. And so you can sort of slurp a little bit of milkshake out, but it's really hard. And so you say, hey, stop holding my straw. I want to drink my milkshake. And the straw guy is like, nope. I got to wait until the guy that I buy the ice cream from is paying me money. And he's like, but I already paid you money. And the straw guy's like, nope, I just want more money. You don't get your milkshake, which I thought was a fantastic way of explaining what all that was about. Wow. I like that. That is amazing. Isn't that amazing? I, I need I need ice cream shop metaphors for everything. You know, I've tried to explain that in front of groups before trying to promote net neutrality. And I think I might have to use that one. Now you have the ice cream guy. It's all about your milkshake and your straw. The open source metaphor that's most commonly used is closed software is like your car with the hood welded shut is the, the classic metaphor. You can drive it, but you can't get to anything to work on it. Oh, that's another good one. Let's talk about another concept in the free software and open source movement, which is the distinction between those terms, because some people are very careful about free software versus open source software. And open source software is a term created deliberately back in 1998 to be more business friendly. And one of the companies that I would associate with great business success in the open source software area would be Red Hat. So I've been curious, how important is it to distinguish between those terms within Red Hat? Within Red Hat, uh, I would say not particularly critical. There's not, in the way that there is, if you just went to um, an average open source conference and started talking to people there, you're going to run into someone from the Free Software Foundation and other people for whom that distinction is incredibly critical and that calling it free software and not open source is very important. But within Red Hat, I would say 99% of the time people are talking about open source. Ah, they're not going to necessarily get mad at you, though, for using the term free software. Not very many people know. Oh, OK. But maybe some. Well, I don't want to exclude anyone who listens to this later is like, hey, I'm your coworker and I'm angry, which is an email I am certain to get. <laughs> I guess you can't speak for the entire company. I understand. There are a lot of us now. Uh, I, I can speak on my behalf, but I'm not prepared to, to speak for all of them. That's cool. What distributions do you use? Fedora, obviously. Yeah. In my in my day to day life, I use Fedora both on my work laptop and on our home server that my kids use all the time. Yeah, it's a it's a very Fedora house. My husband works for Cumulus Networks, and so I believe he is currently using Ubuntu. I may be misspeaking for him as well. I haven't been shoulder surfing to check up on his operating systems lately. Ah, It's a very open source house around here. I am not surprised. <laughs> I know. It's shocking, right? My kid's working on her first science fair project, and she's looking at Raspberry Pis and Arduinos to figure out what she can build. That's cool. And we'll get to more of that in just a little bit. But since you mentioned Fedora, what is the relationship between Fedora and Red Hat? The, the description that we use on the Fedora webpage is Fedora is sponsored by Red Hat. And we do provide a lot of sponsorship in both monetary sense and in workers, people who are paid to work on Fedora on behalf of Red Hat. But then, of course, it's a completely open community full of lots of people, especially our great ambassadors community who are not necessarily Red Hat employees. So in your job, you get to 
help with the Fedora project as part of your work, but then you're also working along people who are volunteering. Yeah. I think for some people that aren't aware of all the different business models, it's interesting to hear about how some of these projects can work because some of them can be completely volunteer driven. But I think Red Hat is an, is an interesting place where it's done a good job of not just being a business project per se with paid employees and not just volunteers. It seems like a good mix. It's at least my goal, and I think the goal of a lot of other people, that we have as many non-Red Hatters contributing to Fedora as possible, because Fedora is about a community. It's not about Red Hat. It does eventually become Red Hat Enterprise Linux, which is the stable and supported version of the same thing, essentially. But Fedora is about a community. In fact, Fedora has what we call the four foundations, freedom, friends, features, and first. And I always like to put friends at the front of that list because Fedora really is about its people and its community and working together because that's what open source is about. So you were the marketing team leader for Fedora. I I was for a time. What was that like? Within any open source community, I think it's always a challenge to find people to work on the bits that are not the code. And I think if there are people listening who are not coders and they want to be involved in all this open source. In fact, I I used Linux for years before I had any idea that I could be a part of all of this, not just Linux, but the open source community. It was just this thing that some other person in my dorm gave me in college and in college free stuff is great. And so when somebody says, hey, here's all this software you could be using for free, that sounds like a fine idea. (laughs) And so I think there are a lot of people out there using this software, especially, as I said, as it becomes increasingly common, uh, who have no idea that they could be a part of it, even if they're not developers. And so marketing groups and documentation groups and design groups all always need more hands on deck. And I, uh, I had been using Fedora for a long time before I came to Red Hat and was working on the brand team. And so it was sort of a natural fit. And that's actually how I started on the, the OSAS team that I'm on now was with the intention of working much more on Fedora marketing. But then as it turns out, we have a lot of other projects that need help. So sometimes there's just not enough of one person to go around. consider yourself to be a developer? Do you write code? Not really. It depends on where your definition is. I would generally say no, but I did very basic PHP and Perl and web development sorts of things before I came to Red Hat. And I can, you know, cobble together some bits of code and edit things. Rather, I have no inclination to sit down and start from scratch. I don't even want to, uh, if I even could anymore in anything. But I have a friend who said, well, you're absolutely a coder. That totally counts. So I suppose it depends on where you sit on the spectrum of what counts as far as my abilities to do anything useful. (laughs) I think you're a great example of someone who is very involved in a project and you're contributing to it, not specifically by code contributions. A lot of people think that the only way you can contribute is through code, but you're contributing in all of these different ways. Yeah, and I would love there to be a lot more non-coders on every open source project out there. Like I said, contributing to all these sorts of things, design, documentation, writing, even QA or blogging about the projects you use and how to do things. And and just there's so much to be done that it would be great if more of the non-coder sorts of people would like to jump in and help out. So there you have it, listeners. Go help out, even if you can't code. Join us. We're friendly. Since you mentioned blogging, we should probably also talk about opensource.com, which is another Red Hat project. Ruth, you've contributed quite a few articles to opensource.com. How would you describe that website? Sure. Well, I'll just explain a little bit of the history of of where it started and where it is now. We launched opensource.com five-ish years ago. It's Yes, it's it was five years in January. I always know roughly how old it is because we started when I came back from maternity leave. So it's always about as old as my second kid. <laughs> the intention with that was to talk, this is actually a really nice segue from the last thing we were talking about, to talk about open source beyond code. And that annoys a lot of people. A lot of people don't want the term open source to be applied to anything besides code. And so I tend to talk about whatever aspect we really mean. And so if that means transparency in business or open textbook development or, uh, you know, what, whatever we, the features of open source that we actually mean when we say open source beyond code, rapid prototyping and, and these sorts of things. And so 
when we originally launched, we separated our content into five channels, business, education, government, law, and life. And life was the sort of catch-all everything else channel. And that's what I was the moderator of, uh, moderator being sort of our term for editor. And so that's where I would talk about uh, video games or healthcare apps or uh, just anything else open source. And eventually we did add an entire health channel to opensource.com. So in those first couple of years, it was almost entirely non-software and certainly non-code. And that has started to change. There's more and more now about open source software. But there's still a lot about all of this open stuff that isn't software. And in fact, the, the top of the page now says discover an open source world. So it's about open governments, which is becoming increasingly common, not only in governments using open source software and tools, but in becoming more open themselves. It's been a huge part of the Obama administration to push for more transparency in government. NASA is one of my favorite examples. They have uh, open, sorry, I've forgotten the name off the top of my head. It's like this 150 page transparency report every year that if you told me I was going to read a 150 page government report, I would have thought you were crazy. But it's actually really interesting and details how NASA participates in open source and how they operate openly themselves. And it's actually all out of the original NASA charter, which mentioned basically being for the people and being open back when it was begun in the 50s. I used to give a talk about all of this, and I'm sorry, a lot of the uh, direct quotes have left my head since then. But <laughs> NASA was formed with all of this in mind, and it started to spread even more broadly across the government, which is just really fantastic and really exciting. We talk on opensource.com about uh, open education. And in fact, we have a whole team in OSAS at Red Hat that is working on education outreach with other universities. Last year, the Rochester Institute of Technology launched an open source minor with Red Hat's help. And so you can go get your degree with a minor in open source. And we're working on how we can help expand that, help other universities offer open source curriculums and perhaps textbooks. And we have several people working on that project, but there's a lot more to open education. Uh, one of my favorite things is open textbooks, if for no other reason than how much money kids can save and how much money, not just at the college level, because I think that's how a lot of us think of it, is how much money we sink into textbooks in college. In the younger grades, when school districts are paying for textbooks, uh, and I believe it was Utah that, that was one of the first that piloted a lot of this. And they ended up saving just millions and millions of dollars moving to open textbooks. Uh, and the whole textbook world is a really fascinating area. <laughs> yeah, there's, a, there's a lot going on in, in that industry. Open healthcare is a really interesting field. Uh, and I think uh, there's a lot going on now with medical devices. And uh, what makes that sort of fascinating to me is Healthcare rightfully involves a lot of approvals. And so uh, one of the things that uh, one of the items I found was fascinating was some number of months ago when they saved a little boy's life by 3D printing. I believe it was it was some sort of piece to hold his trachea open or something. And the idea that somebody somewhere had pushed this through and approved quickly enough to save this kid's life with this little 3D printed bit, I just thought was super amazing. They're finding more and more ways to implement 3D printing into healthcare and from every everything from prosthetics to eventually bioprinting research. And there aren't any open source bioprinters yet, but a few years ago I, I found this talk from a conference where someone had asked someone from Clemson University who was working on bioprinters, what's the difference between what you have and my open source 3D printer that I have on my desk at home. And he said, effectively, not a whole lot except the material that we're printing. And I think bioprinting is just so amazing. Uh, the idea that, that we can print at this point more things like blood vessels, but then eventually entire organs is just amazing. It, it's in the category of things that make me go, we live in the future which kind of started the first time I heard the phrase self-replicating printer. It's like all of my sci-fi dreams are coming true. Was that the lengthiest explanation of opensource.com that you ever wanted to hear? <laughs> it was fantastic explanation. It sounds like in a way that the opensource.com could be part of that movement as well, because you solicit contributions from lots of people. Sure. Opensource.com is its own community functioning very much like a code community, except that you definitely don't have to be able to write code to contribute. You just have to be able to write. And if you feel like you're a bad writer, that's why they invented editors. And so if you have something to say, I strongly encourage you to go to opensource.com. You can click on any of the channels. There's contact information. There's a big blue box on the right that says submit an article and you can find out how to become a contributor and talk about all of the openness that's important to you. 
I like that website. I read it every day. Awesome. It's a wide variety of content, that's for sure. <laughs> and honestly, I didn't even realize that it used to be non-code related because it seems like there is a fair amount of stuff related to open source software. Yeah, there is a lot more now, but but that's where we started with an almost a near ban on talking about software. Huh. Oh, wow. I remember having a little bit of an epiphany when I heard you mention that at Linux Fest Ohio last year saying, hey, you could contribute too. And I thought, oh, that's neat. I never would have thought about it until you had mentioned it at that conference. And have you since gone and contributed an article? I have not. <laughs> this is on your to-do list now. I am virtually writing it on your to-do list from afar. Okay. I will do such a thing. So you say this is open to any topic. Any topic involving openness in some fashion. <laughs> right, but not just software. Right. Hmm. Absolutely. So in a way, that makes it seem almost more intimidating because I think, oh, I could write about so many things. But maybe it'd probably be something that I know something about. <laughs> that's always the best place to start writing. Something that you know about, something that's important to you, because that's where the best and most engaging writing coming, comes from, is something that you actually care about. Okay. I'll say it now. I will submit an article. I have to think about what it'd be on, though. I'm sure you have many, many open source topics to talk about. Yes, because it's a topic that's near and dear to my heart, so much so that I started a podcast about it. Exactly. Most of the stuff we've talked about thus far had some connection to Red Hat. So I don't think this next topic does. You published a book in 2014 called Raspberry Pi Hacks. What motivated you to write that book? We slid it in under the 2013 deadline. It technically was December 2013, but yeah, effectively 2014. Uh, I co-authored it with my friend slash co-worker, Tom Calloway, who uh, used to be the Fedora engineering manager, and now he works on that aforementioned education outreach program. It honestly started because we had built this thing with a Raspberry Pi that we had at OSCON a few years ago, and one of the editors from O'Reilly, who I had met at another conference, was like, hey, you should write something. And I was like, yeah, like an article? He's like, or a book. You could write a book. And that's kind of how that happened. <laughs> I just pulled up my copy of it here, and it says first edition was 2013, and you had a second edition in 2014. So does that mean this is a pretty popular book I'm holding? I didn't even know there was a second edition, so I learned something today. It's also been translated into German, if you would like to read it in German. I speak no German. I did not translate it. I read a little German, so maybe it would be a good extra challenge for me. Uh, maybe not. So how many Raspberry Pi do you own? I, I actually have no idea at this point. Probably too many. Enough that on at least one occasion, and I'm going to say more than that, I have inadvertently stepped on one, and I'm telling you those GPIO are like stepping on Legos, except worse. My house is cluttered with random electronics. In fact, at this very moment, I am looking at my half-assembled Raspberry Pi-powered laser cutter. It's just, it's been waiting for quite a while now for me to finish the wiring, but we're having a bit of a, a disagreement with one another, the laser cutter and I, because at this point, it might actually be talking to me. Well, it sounds like you have fun with your gadgets. I do. Well, why would you do something if it's not fun? What's the point? I don't know. I have two young daughters that are currently 7 and 10, and... You know, we've tried to play around with the Raspberry Pi following some of the examples in your book. Some days they think it's fun and other days they'd much rather be doing rainbow looms. And then my house gets infested with little rubber bands. I have a nine-year-old daughter who is very much the same. In fact, at Joanne's Crafts right now, those rubber bands are 50 cents a bag. Just letting you know. <laughs> oh, no. I'm not telling them that. Uh, yeah, and, and my daughter is very much like that. Uh, again, the rubber bands. And she told me it was I had this sort of revelation, uh, mini revelation a couple weeks ago. We have been talking about, you know, what what you want to be when you grow up and that sort of thing. And I said, well, what do you what do you think you want to be? I like to ask the kids once in a while because the answer changes about every five minutes. And this time, usually it's some form of artist or something. And this time she goes, well, I tell you what I'm not going to be. And I was like, OK, what are you not going to be? And she goes, I am not going to be a computer programmer because it is very hard and I do not like it. Oh, no. <laughs> but that's a perfectly valid conclusion. We do not all have to be computer programmers. 
I think the reality is that she's the kind of kid for whom a lot of things come easy, particularly reading and writing. And so anything that does not come easy at this point is just like, well, I can't do that. But then what I what I realized out of this was a lot of people would ask us, should I get an Arduino or a Raspberry Pi? Well, that's like asking, should I have the steak or the chicken? Like, what do you want? What what are you looking for at the end of this experience? Because uh, they're different devices. And I would generally tell people who wanted it for a kid to get a Raspberry Pi, because even if you have zero idea what you're doing, you can at least flash an SD card and you can start a computer within 10 minutes and you get some satisfaction. Like you have done something. There is some reward. You can install XBMC and you can be watching a movie and never have to think about it again if you don't want to deal with Raspberry Pi ever again. The Arduino, you actually have to put a little more effort into before anything comes out of it. And so this is the recommendation I have made for years now, so long. And then I had bought this I am never going to be a computer programmer daughter, a SparkFun Inventors kit for Christmas. And the SparkFun Inventors kit comes with this little Arduino-based redboard that SparkFun has and gobs of wires and LEDs and sensors. It's got a little potentiometer and just all sorts of wiring stuff. And then a little booklet where you can build all these projects. It's got a little breadboard and a little tray that the breadboard and the board sit in. And yes, my, my daughter, who has declined to become a computer programmer, is now sitting there with this little Arduino derivative board and making things blink and editing the code gleefully all day long and so i think i may have been wrong about that go with the raspberry pi thing apparently it's all about making things blink i think you do make a good point with having something for kids to learn from that they're not realizing they're learning from it it reminds me of one time when i volunteered at the hour of code at the elementary school where my kids go and the kindergartners were playing some game on an ipad and they just had to get a little character through a maze. But I looked at that and saw programming concepts and if-then statements, but they just saw it as a fun game. And it really opened my eyes up to, oh, there's lots of different ways that we can get these kids involved. And maybe the Raspberry Pi is a little bit more advanced. It's probably not for the kindergartner, but maybe that 10 or 12-year-old or certainly older, it would be a way to have fun and have have them sort of see the guts of a computer and that it does something. And, you know, maybe it opens up the door to more tinkering. Yeah, and, and part of the reason that Evan Upton created the Pi was because the students who were coming in as, as college students were so unfamiliar with hardware and so unfamiliar with basic software concepts. But But the hardware was part of it. And this little device lets you look at it and go, here's the CPU, here's the RAM, here are all the, the assorted parts, here's the capacitor you break off with your thumb and recognize those things. But I think some of that is lost on this generation that you and I are raising that are, you know, minors six and nine. At least in my house, there are so many things that look like circuit boards and everything is electronic. That doesn't look weird to them. There is nothing they are learning. It just looks like another green board in the house with some weird pins sticking off of it. (laughs) To them, it's just, you know, it could be the Wii or the PlayStation or the TV or anything with the shell taken off. Like Everything is electronic to them. said in the preface of your book that it's intended for a novice, but I'm wondering if you've come across people that just sort of dabble in Raspberry Pi but aren't otherwise involved in tech. Yeah, well, so we did a couple of maker fairs, both the world maker fairs in Bay Area and New York, as well as local maker fairs with that have much smaller audiences. And you encounter a lot of parents who come up and go, my kid wants me to buy this thing. I don't really know what this thing is. Is this okay? Like, is my kid going to hack the NSA and go to jail before he's 12? Exactly what am I looking at? Is this bad? <laughs> <laughs> and and so just parent after parent, I mean, gobs of them whose kids had said, I want this thing. And they're like, I don't I don't know what this thing is. It looks scary. It doesn't have a case. It's, it's naked electronics. This looks bad. The world's going to end. <laughs> And so we've spent a lot of time reassuring parents that their children are not going to jail, that it's perfectly ordinary. This is totally fine. You should absolutely buy your child a Raspberry Pi. So non-technical parents uh, whose kids are saying, I want to do this. And hopefully the parents learn something along the way. And maybe it needs to come in that Lego box that people always make for it. And it would look less intimidating. Yeah. 
you can easily buy cases for it, but if you just buy it in the, the cardboard box, you know, and you pop it out, you go, hey. The last thing that we've taken to a couple of the maker fairs, we built a Soundwave Transformers costume. As we talked about at the beginning, I'm into costuming. I like to make things I could wear. And so through the entire course of this whole pie odyssey, I've been like, what can I make? What costume can I make that requires a pie? And most of the things that you could think of to put in a costume are blinky lights or something, you know, sound, something along those lines that you could easily do with an Arduino and not need an entire Raspberry Pi. Like, what needs an entire pie? And at the same time one night, I was talking to a friend online about this, and my husband's sitting next to me. And at the same time, my husband out loud and my friend on the computer goes, Soundwave, which if you were not a Transformers fan uh, in the 80s, was this Transformer who didn't turn into a car, he turned into a boombox, and he had a cassette deck in his chest, and all of these little friends who turned into cassettes, and they would pop out and help him in various ways. And uh, so we were like, well, so what if we turned the cassette deck, like, update Soundwave for the 21st century? And so we turned it into a video screen, and uh, we used the Raspberry Pi camera, and so you can press a couple of buttons on the, the side of the screen, and you have the option of looking at the feed from the camera, which is... I didn't realize when I was building it, but the effect of this is that you get to take a selfie with me, but facing me <laughs> while I'm wearing the suit. You put the camera on and you take a picture and you're taking a picture of yourself on my chest. You can press another button and you get a video feed and we loaded it up with Transformers music videos, which is apparently a thing. There are many, many Transformers music videos on the Internet. Who knew? Uh, and if you press the other button, it turns into a video game emulator, and I've got a controller that hides up in the arm piece, and so you can play video games on it. So that was a really fun way to demonstrate something that draws kids into the booth, and you would be amazed how many, like, seven-year-old kids would walk up and be like, Soundwave G1! Like, they even know exactly what it is, and their parents are like, I don't know what you're talking about. The parents who should have been around for it the first time. But the other benefit of this is that it's made out of foam and it is really hot like the floor mat foam that you uh, you could put on the garage floor for a little cushioning it's super hot and I didn't put in a fan or a vent like I should have and so I can only wear it for a limited amount of time before I take it off but then the chest uh, just peels open and so maybe you walked by earlier and you saw sound wave walking around but then you come by again and you can see the guts of this thing and it's it's not pretty in there, especially after a few events and getting crammed into a suitcase and there's some stuff duct taped together. But it's um, just all mounted on Lexan and you can see how it's wired together and how everything goes. And so I think that that was really interesting as a learning tool to be able to see the functioning thing and then the guts of it. The torso part is built on a cube of PVC pipe that then the foam attaches to. And so at least twice somebody has walked by and been like, is that a 3D printer? I'm like, just because it's a cube with a lot of wires, you think it's a 3D print? No, we have one of those, but this is not it. Although if I could 3D print things out of a costume, that would be pretty sweet. Sort of go spitting out little pieces as I go along. I made you this. That particular hack is not in your book, is it? It is not. The only thing that is close to a, a costume hack in the book is actually one of my favorite things in there. And uh, I believe in the book, it's called How to Survive a Gaping Wound or something to that effect. That came out of another costume. My husband and I have Mass Effect armor. Uh, he has Shepard and I have Ashley armor. So the idea was that if you wire the camera into your back so that you have a picture of what's behind you, and you put a small TFT screen in the front where you want your wound to be, and then sort of burn out a hole so that the screen shows through this hole and it looks like you've been shot through. And so you, effectively how they, they make those quote-unquote invis invisibility cloaks or, or, or wall hole, th things like that. There are several things using this technique, but this is a cheap way to do it with a pie and a camera. Just so folks listening know, the, the book is a, a collection of lots of different things that you can do with a Raspberry Pi grouped into different sort of types. It's not the kind of book that you just sit down and read. It's the kind of book where you say, hey, that thing looks cool. I'll make that. Yeah, I think it's about 60-something things and, and pretty solid instructions so that you can follow along and rebuild whatever crazy thing we decided to do. A couple of my favorite things, uh, I, there's there are a lot of warnings in the book that say this is a terrible idea, but you should do it anyway, which is kind of what a hack is, I think. <laughs> this is ill-advised. Here's how you would do it. Tom had the idea, he's walking through Home Depot or something one day, and Rust-Oleum had come out with this paint called Never Wet, which explicitly says, do not use on electronics. And he's like, I think I'll use it on electronics. So he wired together everything that he wanted. That's, that's an important step in this, is put all the wires and things that you're going to use in it. 
and never wets a two-step spray process. And it used to be really chalky finish. It's, they, have, they have a better formula now that doesn't finish looking like you've got nuclear winter all over your pie. But yeah, he sprayed that thing down, never wet, dropped it in a Tupperware full of water, and it just kept blinking away and running just fine. I don't know how long it would work. I assume that there is a finite lifespan on that project. But I would love to see somebody do something awesome with that. There is a project that is using a Raspberry Pi to do research with an autonomous little boat and pie to do ocean biology research. Uh, but they would like this little bad boy to go across the ocean all by himself. And the original version of the waterproof housing was Tupperware, which I think is amazing. Like it, it works for everybody. Tupperware. Now they can use Neverwet, perhaps. One of my other favorite projects is the near-Earth orbit photography, which was something that uh, someone who saw our talk before we had finished the book saw us giving a talk about Raspberry Pi at Southeast Linux Fest. And I always ask people in my talk what they've built, and sometimes they don't want to raise their hand. Uh, sometimes they do. One of my favorites was a guy who uses his to control his big mouth Billy Bass. This guy came up to me after the talk was over to tell me about what he used the pie for. And uh, FAA regulations say that for these weather balloon photography rigs, it can't the payload can't be more than six pounds. And so a Raspberry Pi and a teeny tiny pie camera in a tiny styrofoam cooler is pretty ideal. Uh, and then they use an Arduino based thing called a Tracuino for the, the GPS and uh, they can fit another camera in there. And there's a picture in the book of uh, one of the pictures that they've taken. You can get the SD card in there. And so you get just if you put a big enough card in, you get gobs and gobs of photos and video. And it's pretty awesome. That sounds like fun. Consult your local laws before attempting this project. <laughs> <laughs> yes, lots of warnings in there, I suppose, when you're dealing with electronics and things that weren't intended to be put together. But if you do launch it and you can be near the, the weather balloon when it decides to die at our last local uh, astronomy club gathering, it was just about sunset. And somebody goes, what? what is that? This, this, it wasn't a star. It wasn't a planet. Like none of us recognized it as a thing. And about the time we realized it was a weather balloon, it popped and it was just like this sparkle of stars falling. It was kind of amazing. Just totally stalk your weather balloon and watch it pop. So you published the book with O'Reilly Media, and I'm a pretty big fan of their books. And I've, I've heard people talk about how you write a book for O'Reilly, and then you become a rock star in the free software community, or the open source community, I should say. How has it changed your life since you've written this book? And did, did you enjoy working with O'Reilly? Yeah, O'Reilly is is lovely folks. I, I don't know if this has turned me into a rock star. I have neither just guitar fans posters with my name i have none of these things i would let how do i get to be a rock star my children don't eat their dinner anymore frequently i, I don't know that anything has changed really <laughs> um i say that i'm signing books for free and a line of people shows up so that's pretty cool that is cool and that's one of those terms i don't particularly like is rock star i should i should have put a little warning in front of that that's the term i think they use i could get some pretty big hair <laughs> i could go 80s hair band. I got I got big hair. I could make that happen. And I got some crazy outfits. I think I think I could do this rock star thing. Well, I suppose another another thing people would associate with being a rock star is being up in front of a lot of people and you tend to speak at a lot of conferences. I do do that. I'm I'm pretty good at running my mouth. In fact, I think that's what we're doing right now. You like that? <laughs> <laughs> you know, my my big brother used to tell me that that I should stop running my mouth and I should shut up. And now I'm kind of like, huh, well, that's working out for me. Well, it's kind of become, I guess, the theme of this show is that we've talked about how you can code and some people might call you a coder, but your main area of contributing to open source, you've done it through marketing, you've done it through blogging and getting other people to blog, you've done it through writing a book and you do it through speaking. Well, and so sometimes people feel like non-coders don't get as much respect as perhaps they deserve within open source communities. And that may even be at fault for the low numbers in those contributor areas. But not only is it something we need more of, I'm OK with that being how I contribute, because I'm going to try to say what I'm thinking without sounding really self-important. On a regular basis, people come up to me after my talks and say things like, wow, that was really great. Like, you're a really competent speaker. Like, that wasn't horribly boring like the three talks that I just listened to. 
and part of that is that I'm it's you know it's hard to make a dry talk about code really exciting but part of it is that that's one of the things I'm good at is talking and and being I hope reasonably engaging I usually give talks on perhaps more interesting than like it's important to have those code talks but then I'm going to talk about makers or this open source education stuff or this other open source beyond software I used to give a talk called the pop culture guide to open source which was a lot of fun and I really enjoyed giving that and so if the way that I can contribute to open source is by making people more excited about it, I am totally okay with that because more excitement means more contributors of every kind. And that's what we need. I agree completely. I also agree that having fun talks at conferences, it makes them more enjoyable, obviously. Anyone who would like to see the, the Ruth show live and in person next, I will be at PenguinCon at the end of April, which... Uh, when I first heard about it, I thought it was a really fascinating combination. It's sort of, it's half open source conference and half Comic-Con, Sci-Fi-Con type conference. And I thought, these are highly overlapping communities. This is a genius idea. And in reality, the couple of times I've been, it seems like people tend to go to one half or the other and not as much blending. But I'm giving talks on both open source and costuming, and you should come and go to both of those talks. So that's another overlap. You've found... Lots of areas where your interests overlap. Another talk you've given a few times recently is about the makers as the next frontier for open source, where you suggest that it's critical that makers understands the lessons we've learned in the open source and free software communities. How is that cause important for you? You just said it for me. Good job. <laughs> <laughs> Darn it. There's no question left. <laughs> there's lots of movements that are similar to open source that we've mentioned with regarding to opensource.com, the open access, creative commons, open governments, open education, the other so-called free culture movements. How do you think the maker movement is doing in comparison to some of those other efforts? I've only given this talk twice. I did a, a version of it at Ohio Linux Fest and then just a few weeks ago at Southern California Linux Expo. They were a little bit different. The scale one was significantly longer. Uh, with more concrete examples. But I think that this was the natural next step in the progression of the things that interest me and thus what I like to run my mouth about in that it's starting with all of that opensource.com work and all of the openness beyond the code and how openness is important in other places and especially, you know, business and government and whatnot. And then this year of my life that went into a Raspberry Pi book, and then we started, Tom and I, going to the Open Hardware Summit, which is a few years now, old now and run by the Open Source Hardware Association, which created the open hardware definition, just like we have an open source definition for software. And there's this growing community, not only of open hardware, and I use that as a good example, but of a lot broader maker community that... Uh, is sharing, but not in the way that we consider open source. Uh, and you would think, having given this talk twice now, that I would be able to put this more succinctly. But the way that that is easiest to describe is the first year that we went to the Open Hardware Summit in person. They, they usually stream it, and so you can watch it online if you're not there. It was either the second or third year that they held the Open Hardware Summit. And it was the year that Brie Pettis, after spending a lot of time talking about how critical openness was, that very week announced that the Replicator 2, the MakerBot Replicator 2, would be closed. And he came and spoke at Open Hardware Summit and sort of explained why they had done that, which I thought was rather bold and really interesting. And the uh, guy who was editor-in-chief of Wired Magazine at the time gave the keynote and talked about how we needed at the open hardware summit, like those are the three words in the name. He talked about how we needed to find alternatives to, to this full openness. And my brain kind of broke. And the rest of the day, it's a kind of conference where you're not going to a different panel in a different room every hour. It's just everybody's in one big auditorium watching the same talks all day. And every person almost, I felt like I was calling it openness by accident. They hadn't set out to be open hardware or open source in any way on purpose for the most part. It was just, and I think this is a largely out of the internet culture and the time that we are in right now that sharing by default is kind of what we do. It's, hey, look at this thing that I made. And so the openness was happening not intentionally and thus not with thought and purpose and all the things that are required to genuinely have open hardware, but just, hey, look at this thing. 
as we all know, as I'm, I'm sure most of the people who would be listening to this know uh, the importance of open source and how much better it is as a development model for software. And I think that that is easily expanded beyond the software into hardware, into the maker community at large, and back to opensource.com, into business and government and education and everything else. Like openness basically always makes it better. And we could spend another hour talking about all of those examples. And so I really think that there is room for the open source software community to take all the lessons that we've learned over the years into the open hardware communities, into the maker communities, into local maker spaces and hacker spaces, and in the places where these people are gathering and help them teach them all the things that, that we know about how openness works, why it's important and how they can do it. And of course, one of the primary concerns is always, well, how do I make money if I'm giving it away? But as you pointed out, Red Hat managed to become a billion dollar company on open source, and it's hardly the only one anymore that is doing quite well with open source software. And, and so that's not even a concern. There are obviously greater legal concerns and more interesting problems when you're talking about tangible things as opposed to just software. But it's not an insurmountable issue. The 3D printer that we often have in the Fedora booth uh, is from a company called Aleph Objects, the Lulzbot printer, uh, or the TAS is the, I think what the latest models are called. And they're, they're open source printers and they're amazing. And that company it seems to be doing just fine. It's, it's not that you can't make a profit with openness and it's not that the legal problems are insurmountable, but there's definitely room for growth and room for learning. And I think that the open source software community and the people who have been working there all of these years are the right ones to jump in and help out and make a difference. Are there themes that you think run across these different activities that get you involved in this open source and free culture movement? What motivates you? I like to make stuff. Uh, <laughs> I mean, that's, that's really, it's the intersection of the fact that I have always made stuff and that I believe in open source. And it happens that we have come to a time when those things vary naturally and wonderfully intersect and that's great for me but yeah there's there's nothing that I look at and don't think huh how could I make that <laughs> if you can if you can sew it or bake it or frost it or set it on fire or attach some wires to it or cut it or glue it or solder it or dremel it or it kind of looks like a Michaels and an AC Moore and a Joann's and a Home Depot all got together and barfed in my house that's kind of what we're working with here. It's an interesting image. <laughs> <laughs> so you're around a lot of free software advocates. Does it sometimes feel like you're preaching to the choir when you give these talks? Oh, absolutely. And and that's kind of how, that's one of the ways that Tom and I started getting involved in the maker communities is because we were looking for those new audiences to reach because I can do open source and Linux conferences all day long, but all of those people know what Linux is and they know what Fedora is and they know what open source is. And there's only so much more I can tell them. Uh, we have some Fedora people who are really interested in reaching out to the music community and helping them uh, as that software becomes more useful, more viable for professional work. And uh, yeah, I'm always interested in reaching new communities. Uh, in fact, you know, you say, you're probably around a lot of open source people, so much so that sometimes it is somewhat disarming when someone says something like blah, 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 Excel sheet. And I'm like, what? I, I don't wait. Windows is still a thing. I didn't you use that. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot. Sorry. And as a side note, if you'd like to learn more about free software for working musicians, see my interview with Jesse Von Doom from Cash Music in episode three of hacking culture. Glad I could help you out with that. Yeah, thank you. Good plug. So what do you think the future holds for the free software and open source movement? All open all the time. I am an eternal optimist. And when I've done, when I've talked about this maker stuff and the open hardware and more openness, and there's always someone who wants to say, but, but, but what about, but, but what about, and I am just eternally optimistic and believe that even if the end result is not the optimal one, at least we're aiming in the right direction, I'd always rather have 80% success than 0% attempt. 
And and so, yeah, I believe that the future, not of just of software, of hardware, of maker communities, of businesses and education and governments and everything is more openness, because in the end, openness makes everything better. Who inspires you? Who inspires me? Wow. Yes. Uh, that's a really good question. I mean, it, it depends on in what. And I think everybody has a little bit of inspiration to give in whatever it is that are your strengths. I guess we all have idols and that word rock stars that you hate to use. I don't want to start naming open source people. That's just a dangerous path. I love all of Colleen Atwood's costumes. Can I use that? Yes. She's my favorite costume designer, and it will not result in me offending anyone that I work with. (laughs) (laughs) I do, in my Pollyanna sort of version of myself, Find a, I really do find a little bit of inspiration in everybody because everybody who works in open source is doing it because they're passionate about it. And passion is where you find inspiration. Passion comes from belief and that's what makes you keep going. And so when I see someone who has that, I want a little more of that for myself. So how can people learn more about all of the awesome things that you're up to? Where can they follow you in your work? If you just want to follow the Ruth, the Twitter is a a pretty good place. Uh, And for most of the Internet, I just use my last name because it's reasonably uncommon. And the barrier to entry is that you have to be able to spell it. And so if you can spell S-U-E-H-L-E, you can probably find me. That's my Twitter handle. Or if you Google Fedora Ruth Seeley, you get my Fedora info page. And that has all sorts of information as well. Well, it's been a pleasure talking with you, Ruth. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to this episode of Hacking Culture. You can learn more about this show and subscribe at lullabot.com slash hacking culture. Please follow at Hacking Culture and at Matthew Tift on Twitter or mtift on Microcast. You can also contact Matthew via email at hackingculture at lullabot.com. This episode is released under the Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 3.0 United States License. Hacking Culture is produced at Lullabot. The theme music is from the Open Goldberg Variations. Thank you for listening. <laughs>